0: Save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to be speaking with Dr. Andrew Fiss about his book titled Performing Math A History of Communication and Anxiety in the American Mathematics Classroom, published in 2020 from Rutgers University Press. Um, This book is fascinating. It helps us understand why even today we have this idea that math is a subject that a lot of people hate, a lot of people feel anxious about. Um, And that's in fact something I personally feel in a lot of instances. And I honestly never really thought about where that came from or kind of why that was. It certainly wasn't something that I was used to hearing about other subjects so regularly, Um, and this book answers that question and many more by going back in time um, and examining how a lot of ways of teaching, different tools, different beliefs about teaching, um, have actually created these ideas that math is something that is performed and that that somehow makes us anxious and makes us scared, or at least a lot of us. Um, so I'm certainly not doing as good a job summarizing it as I'm sure our author, the author of it, is about to. Um, so Andrew, welcome so much to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, and um, thank you for being here to tell us all about your book.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this
1: book? Absolutely. So I'm Andrew Fiss, I'm an associate professor in technical communication, and also the director of the graduate program in rhetoric theory and culture at Michigan Technological University. So I did doctoral work in history and philosophy of science from a background in mathematics. And when I was a math student, I noticed how people around me talked about math. So. sort of relates to your intro a little bit. When my friends talked about their studies in music, science, arts, engineering, there wasn't necessarily such a big reaction. But when I said I studied math, the frequent response was, oh, I hate that. And it happened so much. And from so many people that I got really interested in studying that reaction more than math itself. So I gradually came to write this book. And This book uh, is really sort of about how math classes need to take seriously the reaction of hatred and how mathematics education should be understood as communication based, how a lot of that math communication connects to theatrical performance. So as you mentioned, this book is about 19th century America, when US universities established various educational frameworks, and it looks at those in various chapters. So first looking at textbooks that supported reading aloud, and then textbook burnings and funerals for math textbooks that parodied the work of the classroom. Then it goes on to blackboards that supported oral presentations theatrical plays written by and performed by math students and finally written tests that reframed what it meant to perform math. So in in conclusion, or I guess altogether, the book came to be about math education as ultimately sort of communication-based and performance-oriented, which is why it has the title Performing Math.
0: Hmm. I'm glad you explained the title um, because I think that's always a good Insight into a book. um, And not surprised really that uh, you've come across a lot of people with that kind of reaction of I hate math. Um, So I'm very curious to get into these examples that you've just um, listed for us and explained what the book covers. But I also would love to ask you about some of the kind of behind the scenes of what went into this book. Because one thing I was particularly curious about reading from at the beginning of the book was this idea that you were talking so much about kind of how students were reacting. And from a historian's point of view, I was sort of like, well, that's really cool. But how do we know? How do we know what students were thinking um, in such amazing detail? And in fact, you then talk about your sources and they're very cool. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the sources you were able to use for the book.
1: Sure. So I began this book as a doctoral student. And at that time, I used a lot of more usual documents like textbooks and university archives, personal papers, newspapers. So of course, that's a very recognized way of telling the history of education in the US. But I started finding some odd things in these kinds of documents. So there was a doodle from Cadet Dahlgren uh, in the military academy being attacked by what he called the demons of geometry. And then there were other things too records of student plays about mathematics like Vassar College's Mathematicado, school traditions involving math like Yale University's Burial of Euclid. I kept finding these things and and they didn't really fit into my doctoral work, so I I didn't put it in there, but I did save them to write about later. Um, And integrating these informal and formal student performances was a way that I found to try to get at some of that student reaction to their mathematics classes. And that came to be a big part of this book.
0: Mm, And a fascinating part of the book as well. Um, So with that sort of foundation of what the book's doing and some of the sources it's using, uh, I will now take us hopefully on something of an effective tour of the main points of the book. Obviously, we're not going to be able to get into all of the detail that the book does, but we can maybe do kind of a highlights tour Um, of some of it. And so we have to start where the book does in this section um, with the Conic Sections Rebellion. What is this and how is it significant?
1: (laughs) All right, thanks. So the Conic Sections Rebellion is the name historians give to two events in the history of Yale University. Both of them were about the class called Conic Sections, which is the study of curves that are produced when a plane intersects a cone. So you can think of circles, ellipses, parabolas, hyperbolas, that kind of thing. So the bigger of the two conic sections rebellions was in 1830. And that was when 45 Yale students were dismissed because they said their classes were too difficult. So they submitted these petitions to faculty over various days about this. And there were faculty meetings in response, so it seemed like the faculty actually took this somewhat seriously, um, which is a a bit of an amazing thing in the first place. But uh, one of the things about the petitions was that ultimately it seemed like they came around to talking about how the classes were too difficult because of the expectations for communication in them. So the the students complained because they needed to do their problems from diagrams instead of from the book. This was such a big deal because, as the faculty said at the time, students what they called entered into combination, so students banded together against them, basically, and that led to dismissals of so many students. It was also such a big deal at the time because Yale had become associated with certain assumptions about math education through the textbook series of the then-Yale president, Jeremiah Day. Math was supposed to confer what he called mental discipline, the idea that math was the ideal way to exercise the mind like physical activity exercises the body. So the Yale faculty found that expressions of worry in these student petitions just really illogical, and they just didn't fit with the educational program of the university at the time.
0: Hmm. And it is quite significant that the faculty took such attention on it um, and that 45 students were dismissed. That's not, you know, one person. So a very interesting way to start the book um, and get into these ideas around communication and math. But first, I want to pick up this thing about the physical and the mental. How was gym class, or the idea of physical exercise, related to math class and performing math?
1: Yeah, exactly. So it did have a lot to do with this idea of mental discipline. So because of mental discipline, math got connected to debates about this physical exercise and ultimately what was then talked about in terms of required gymnastics. So as I was mentioning, so math was considered to be this way that the mind worked out, making students' mental faculties sort of sweat. And it made students, apparently the idea was that it made students feel ready for actual physical exercise. And then students tired out from gymnastics would be ready for math. (laughs) Um, It was presented as a bit of a cycle a New Haven teacher of the 1840s, this person named Nathaniel Root, explained these connections. And he also talked about other connections between what came to be known as gym class and math class. For him, both emphasized competition. So everyone tried to be a winner when he was doing arithmetic drills or school games. And he, he mentioned some of those kinds of comparisons. Also, both had their roots in military drills and sort of expectations for military life more generally. Gym class assumed marching in formation at the time and doing things like that. And math class was being reframed through educational programs coming out of the military academy at West Point. And because of these military connections and even more, um, There were, of course, certain assumptions about the race and gender of the students, not to mention some expectations of ability or personality and how that all would be connected to ideas about who would succeed in mathematics classrooms. All of this sort of goes to begin to indicate how looking at textbooks and teachers can be helpful in terms of sort of piecing out some of these surprising historical connections Um, and uh, but we can get at a little bit more of the story i think through looking at some of the students and some of the kinds of things that they did
0: Mm. wonderful transition i'd love to ask you about some of the things that students did particularly or at least initially the tradition of funerals for math textbooks. You detail a number of them in the book. They are very dramatic, very ritualized. What were they? What do they tell us about students' perceptions of math class and the performative aspect of math?
1: Yeah, exactly. So the idea is that thinking about math classes from a student's point of view is less about educational debates and it's less about, so what is mental discipline and what does that have to tell us? And it's more about school traditions. So one of the really surprising things to me that I found when I was working on this book was that students at many 19th century American colleges held funerals for their math textbooks. They burned their books, they buried them, they sang songs did speeches over them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, very dramatic and very ritualized, as you said. Um, so in terms of some of the significance, um, so it was about the students coming together, celebrating their collective accomplishment at passing the required, usually for them, the last required mathematics class. And it was really a way of showing college pride. So um, one of the most surprising things that that I feel like came out of looking at math funerals was thinking about how, of course, math funerals are about destroying the math textbook. And most of the students did, uh, some of them were more successful at it than others. So, um, one, one college archive that I visited had like a half-burned book that was still saved <laughs> in the archive. <laughs> so those students did not destroy it entirely successfully. Um, but the, the main surprise was that these textbook funerals also created print materials, especially having to do with college songs. And because of that, that's why I, I sort of go through multiple institutions um, because funerals were different um, because they had so much to do with understandings of college identity and the specifics of sort of understandings of what that meant at different places. Um, so a couple of examples. So Yale's, um, their, their textbook funeral emphasized, Euclid and connections to ancient Greek. So Nathaniel Root, who I mentioned before, was one of the compilers of the songs of what was called the burial of Euclid there. Also, at Hamilton College and Bowdoin College, which were known to be more scientific, the funerals for math textbooks were more about calculus and Latin, At Bates College, which was open to both women and black Americans, it was a way for a small group of white men to say that they were the best college students. So in these various cases, these math funerals connected to these different kinds of assumptions about college life. Um, It was still about what the students learned in their math classrooms um, and that connected in some cases to some sort of derogatory attitudes more often it connected to specifics of terminology and technology so um i'll sing a little bit of a yale song as an example if that's okay yes um okay fantastic so this is a parody of oh Susanna," which at the time was known as a a blackface minstrel song. No more we gaze upon that board where oft our knowledge failed, as we its mystic lines ignored on cruel points impaled, We're free, hurrah from Euclid free, farewell, misname play fair, farewell there, worthy Tudor be, shake hands and call it square <laughs> Thank you. <sighs>
0: Very theatrical. Exactly. Very funny. Um, I will admit on the record to any listeners, um, Yale is my alma mater. um, That's where I did my undergraduate degree. Um, But I did not participate in any funerals for Euclid, Um, mostly because I just avoided taking math classes. I will admit that. Um, But thank you for sharing with us some of those details. And it was interesting how the traditions were different for each university and that related to kind of who the students were and who it was assumed was taking math classes as well. Um, So I imagine we'll probably kind of pick that up in subsequent answers. Um, But for now, I'd love to move back into the classroom. That's one of the things I appreciated about the book, that it um, didn't take as a dichotomy, kind of what students were doing in and out of the classroom. They were all sort of part of one thing. Um, And talk about kind of the board that that song just mentioned because you make this really interesting argument that the blackboard as a thing that we may not think about that much now um, was actually a new thing in a lot of senses in this time period. And there's a lot of debate about it. Um, And particularly in this sense, how do you think the blackboard increased kind of the performance and communication around math and therefore maybe made it scarier?
1: Right, yes. So we heard a little bit about the blackboard in that last song. And as you were mentioning, so the blackboard is such an interesting pedagogical development for 19th century American classrooms, in part because it's so overlooked now. Um, So at the time, handheld slate and chalk had been used, but large writing surfaces on the wall were, were rare. And that was the case... Um, for the, the 18th century, early 19th century, until blackboards were popularized by the math classes taught at West Point. So around the 1830s, math faculty at West Point started to use the blackboard as a way to teach French mathematics and its connections to engineering. Gradually, the expectation developed that teachers gave lectures at the board one day and students stood in front of the blackboard the next day and they i it it sounds based on the the accounts that they answered questions um, but it was sort of most important that they also be in front of the board so that's something that that developed in the 1830s developed gradually and then these Um, ideas were spread through a textbook series from Military Academy professor Charles Davies. And not only did his textbook series, which became extremely popular at the time, not only did that sort of spread the methods for how to use such a board, but also, of course, it spread the technology of the blackboard as well. Um, And as you mentioned, there was a certain what I call stage fright, that developed in students in response. Um, there was this idea that it was difficult to act calmly in front of the board. And that resulting discomfort actually provides one reason, perhaps, for the conic Sections Rebellion of 1830. That was a time when Yale students were encountering the the blackboard and it was it was a new technology so perhaps some of the kinds of things that they said in their petitions had to do with some of that sense of stage fright in front of the board it also inspired the creation of new funerals for math textbooks that looked a little bit different from the ones before there were new math songs even pieces of math themed art that featured a presenium stage and, finally, theatrical plays about math written and performed by math students.
0: So, obviously, I'm now going to ask you about those theatrical plays, right? So that's kind of where we have to go next because this was fascinating and deeply detailed. Um, and it was mainly after the American Civil War that this kind of develops into this new more intensive, I suppose, more organized format. Um, So can you tell us about kind of why was it at that point? And then of course, tell us about these performances. What were they like? What was the goal? What was happening here?
1: Uh, Okay, that sounds good. Um, So right, after the American Civil War, um, so the math funerals did, uh, in certain kinds of ways, go on stage at various universities. So they still had some of the same features that they did before, there was there was still the expectation that they had songs, that there would be speeches, and in some cases props. But the location began to change with the changing places of singing societies or drama clubs. In part, this was because of the changing educational technologies, the blackboard like I was saying before, it really encouraged students to stand and present their work. In part, this was because of the other ways that American higher education changed after the Civil War. So there was increasing standardization and, of course, demographic expansion in who could go to college, especially from women and Black Americans. Also, of course, in in what was parodied as the Gilded Age in the Northeast, There were some fantastically wealthy businessmen who decided to use their money to found new new universities, particularly ones that benefited women as well as men. What these performances looked like, that varied quite a bit, but it continued to reflect educational assumptions about higher education and in this particular case about women's roles in higher education at the time.
0: Tell us more about that, about women in math, women in theatrical performances around math.
1: Absolutely. Yes, definitely. So um, uh, there are a couple of examples of how women had various kinds of roles in these theatrical performances that developed after the Civil War. So men at Columbia University in New York City constructed a funeral for their textbooks that serenaded women at the neighboring Rutgers Female College. So their songs became less about math and more about historical subjects, um, and they, they started using other textbooks from other classes. Um, and as they're making this shift um, in, different, in different years, it seemed like the students as a whole were drawing on earlier senses of serenading, imagining women as appreciative listeners without necessarily seeing them at all. All right, yes, so the students at Cornell University crossed Cayuga Lake to similarly serenade the students at Wells College, and they scripted parts for the women of Wells who they thought would also act as appreciative audience, but in that way sort of only applaud and otherwise sort of show how much they like the songs. So with these as a background, then um, we can look at something like the, the similar events that happened at Vassar College. So Vassar College was a bit different. It was all female at the time, and it was founded on the principle of providing the same education to women as men received at other universities. So at Vassar, students wrote scripts and staged plays as an alternative to the math funerals. Their version meant that they remained at home on their campus instead of venturing out, and of course that was considered appropriate, but it also showed that they could have fun with their math classes too, and that was an important way of saying that they were true college students. At the time, professors like Elida Avery and Axa Ely made these arguments explicitly, but the students' arguments in these, what came to be these math plays, ended up being pretty powerful as well. The 1886 Mathematicato at Vassar College was particularly successful in how it appeared in other universities' student newspapers, these reports picked up on how the Mathematicato subtly argued against fears of women's educational education through a rewrite of Gilbert and Sullivan's Mikado, of course. And the Mathematicato even made fun of those fears through having students appear on stage singing parodied lyrics like the ones referred to in the book. So things like, flunko, flunko, flunko.
0: I can see how that would be you know, very similar to kind of what you were telling us before about Yale when it was, of course, all men. Um, so it does kind of build that idea of, you know, anything you can do, we can also do, or maybe do better. Who knows? Ask the Vassar women. Um, thank you for kind of illuminating how this tradition adapts. Um, but unfortunately, so does the fear, right? You already mentioned earlier that um, there are a number of different ways this develops over time. We talked about the introduction of the blackboard, But of course, the thing that causes fear that we might be more familiar with today is written testing. How did that become part of this story of performative math and anxiety about math?
1: Right. So written testing is something that I end up getting to, especially because of these kinds of connections. And like the Blackboard, this is another educational technology and one that uh, again, we sometimes overlook in that kind of way. And it shaped how students were supposed to communicate about math, the, the various expectations around that. So I, I mention, especially because this is mainly a story of 19th century America. So I, I look back to the early century when public oral examinations had been the norm. But the American Civil War, was an important turning point in this development as well. It saw the beginning of a push for written certification, especially for things like engineering, the idea that it was important for uh, the military to have certified engineers and that there needed to be a written test to show that. So the uh, military academy, which of course had earlier pushed the adoption of the blackboard, now started to encourage written testing because of that connection with written certification, and various educators took on that charge. Written testing allowed for quite a bit of standardization and conformity, and that was helpful at the time, um, again, as, as there were initiatives for standardization um, in the, the federal level, Um, as well as some ideas about um, trying to expand uh, educational opportunities for more of the population. But the expectations for math communication literally became part of defining um, mathematics anxiety in um, quite a bit later, in the later 20th century. So it seems like there's this sort of interesting connection um, between the the emergence of this new educational technology and this sort of um, idea of how there are feelings of extreme discomfort uh, and that these are experienced by a large number of people when they're faced with written tests, um, especially times high stakes tests in mathematics. Also, the writing doesn't really get rid of the performance part of that kind of an exam even when there's this move from oral examination to written examination. So one teacher of the early 20th century who advocated the adoption of written exams emphasized how these, how the written exams still looked a certain way, how they still sounded a certain way, and That even sort of connected for him to this idea of the sound of silence, or even a collective sigh indicating that the test was done.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Especially because you wouldn't necessarily think of written tests as being sort of on stage the way that, oh, come up to the blackboard and show us what you've done, right? Might be. Um, But interesting to kind of link them in that way around sort of performance and stage fright. Now that we've kind of brought ourselves up to what scares people now, which, as you said, is timed, high-stakes, written tests, um, you did mention at the beginning about how you want educators to take this seriously. And in fact, in the book, you discuss some ways that that could look going forward. Um, And one of them I was interested to see was the steam movement. So no, this is not about smoke. Um, this is essentially stem the acronym that we're probably more familiar with but you add an a into it to make it steam so could you tell us a bit about this and why you think it might be a way forward
1: sure uh so i should probably mention first of all that so this book was printed in 2020 um so the the covid 19 pandemic has changed some of my response to this question but i'll i'll first talk a little bit about what you'll find in the book and the kinds of things that I say there. So in the book, I, I really sort of encourage the reconsideration of math education in that framework of STEAM. So STEAM is the usual STEM acronym, but adding an A for the arts. And I think it's really important to add the arts in understanding mathematics and especially math education. Um, in part because of the connections to theater and performance that I indicate in my book in these different kinds of ways, like presenting in front of the blackboard, or even thinking about the, the um, written tests as as somehow participating in a certain kind of stage fright, there can be some connections there. Um, also, I, I mentioned this briefly, but I think that it's helpful to think about how Thinking about the arts can reframe claims from some mathematicians who say that their work is more artistic than scientific after all. So, so STEAM might be helpful for us in terms of thinking about that. Also, in terms of anxieties around performing math, thinking about the arts can help in emphasizing changing expectations for communication, Um. And this is something that, of course, I talk about quite a bit in terms of textbooks and blackboards and written tests, as well as these um, math funerals of different kinds. Um, but also those expectations for communication could be in some ways connected to thinking about these, this kind of connection to stage fright as well. And the ways that that or, or more more recently, math anxiety, can lead to moments of silence or absence when someone feels like they they just um, are not able to perform in the way that is expected. And the arts are a great way of studying those kinds of topics. So in the book, I emphasize the connections to workshops about um, theater and STEM communication, so the ones that especially connected the two, and the ones that are, for instance, taught by theater professionals for the purpose of improving STEM communication. So understanding math anxiety as akin to stage fright could help, um, and could help especially point people in the direction of those kinds of workshops or those opportunities. Um but in general, I was reluctant to offer a list of, of suggestions for overcoming math anxiety. And since the COVID pandemic, I'm even more reluctant. So of course, changes to the l- delivery of education, um, how like educational content is delivered to us and how we deliver it, um, those have accelerated and just changed so much. Um, so I've been wondering a little bit if an new educational paradigm is forming in response to the COVID crisis and of course what that means for math education or for education broadly is certainly still developing but this is also a book that's a work of history so um, there's still that historical focus and I still definitely stand behind that is still relevant in part because the expectations for math education, even now, are still communication-based, even though it's possible that they'd be partially mediated by textbook websites now, or web conferencing, typing, and speaking in front of screens more than before.
0: Hmm. I was particularly um, curious about the fact that your book is historical and yet also speaks quite directly um, to the present and to the present classroom. Um, And you also use, as we've spoken about, some interesting sources. So given kind of this range of all different kinds of range, um, you mentioned a few surprises already. But is there any other surprises you kind of came across in this process of investigating all of this um, that you'd like to share?
1: Oh, yeah, that's, (laughs) that's a good question. Uh, Yeah, you're right, I've gotten through a lot of things that have been surprising to me already. Um, I've talked about this a little bit already, but I feel like most surprising from that point of view was probably the libretto of the 1886 Mathematicado at Vassar College, because I didn't need to go anywhere to access it. So, like a lot of people um, in, in history of education know, we spend a lot of our time at school archives, university archives, um, trying to access different kinds of historical documents, but in this particular case, uh, my wife and colleague Laura Kasson-Fiss bought the libretto at a used bookstore near Vassar College when she and I were students there, so this, this thing that she she bought because she was interested in Gilbert and Sullivan and thought it looked kind of interesting and funny. Um, this thing traveled around with us as we moved around the country for studies, for jobs. And it wasn't until I was writing an early version of this book that we noticed that it was an instance of the math funerals that I read about in other university archives. Hmm. So yeah, it, it was uh, it was such an interesting moment and it really sort of helped push this book along at a crucial moment
0: (laughs) what a wonderful sort of coincidence or serendipity um thank you for sharing that with us as my final question really um obviously this book came out in 2020 and as you mentioned things have changed rather a lot since then um is there anything you've been working on since you're currently working on or you're looking to work on next that maybe we could get a sneak preview of
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. uh, So, as you mentioned, of course, it's been a little bit difficult to find time to work on projects outside (laughs) of teaching and advising and the usual university work, um, as well as, of course, uh, various kinds of things having to do with uh, having a young family.
0: Well, And also Um, access to archives being a massive problem, I would imagine.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, But I've, I've been starting to think about the kinds of things that I've compiled already and, and that I've had access to, but haven't necessarily written about as much. And in that case, I'm, I'm starting to think about the kinds of writing connected to computer science in the United States. So I've, I've mm-hmm. been starting to work on a new project that would extend the 1890s work of the Harvard Observatory the team of women called computers there, to the building of artificial systems that did such work in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. So I'm especially interested in writing in computer science. Um, of course, that's probably not that surprising given my focus on <laughs> communication in mathematics classrooms in this. Um, but uh, the piece that I, I really have been liking about this is how writing in computer science has bridged various kinds of work. So thinking about domestic and professional, how writing in computer science might bridge psychological and logical areas, military and civilian, natural and artificial. So I've been looking at those and then also thinking about um, how those kinds of expectations for writing and those kinds of spaces of work um, also become connected to arguments for computer science as a distinct field of study. So after all, computer science in a lot of ways came out of mathematics. Um, so uh, I, I find it very interesting that there is this sort of sense of it being distinct now and how mm-hmm. that's come out. Mm-hmm. So. That project is still coming together, but also one thing I wanted to mention, um, so there will be other surprising historic songs in that new book, too. Wow, so, really? That's something that I've been finding, yes. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, I was already going to say that um, if that becomes a book, you should come back and tell us all about it. But now knowing that there are going to be songs involved, um, we really will have to have you back uh, when that becomes a book so best of luck with that project and thank you for telling us about it um but as a last reminder to listeners uh, the book we've mainly been talking about is again titled performing math a history of communication and anxiety in the american mathematics classroom out in 2020 from rutgers university press dr andrew fiss thank you so much for being with us on the podcast and sharing your insight and expertise with us
1: and thank you for having me